You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our first reading this morning is from the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 6, the verses 1 through 8. When men began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that in every inclination of the thoughts of his that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground, and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. For our reading from Genesis, we'll turn now to the New Testament, to Luke chapter 19. We'll read the verses 28 through 40. The entrance of our Lord Jesus Christ into Jerusalem, beginning of the Passover week, as the time of his death and resurrection approaches. Luke chapter 19 at verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As they went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Text this morning is the passage immediately following our second reading. Luke 19, the verses 41 through 44. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on this donkey. We read there in verse 41, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you, and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. 
They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it must have been quite a sight. Jerusalem, during the Passover, was a flurry of activity and humanity. All the Israelite men were called to be there to assemble at the temple for the Passover itself. Many would have brought their families along with them. They would have come from from all over, even from outside of the borders of Israel or the province of Judah in those days under Roman rule. Surely as all these people came together, it must have been a, a time of great festivity. Friends and family reuniting, sharing the delight of renewed acquaintances. It was into this city, bursting with visitors, bursting with religious zeal, bursting with political power, all blended together, that the Lord Jesus rode, mounted on a donkey, with a very large crowd gathered around him, creating a pathway down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, a pathway of robes and branches, and acclaiming him, acclaiming him as king with shouts of joy and praise, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna in the highest. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What a sight that must have been. How their hearts must have swelled up within them. Joy. The praise with expectation of what this king would do. But there was one person who was not swept up in the joy of that moment coming into Jerusalem. Rather, as he rode into the city of God, he mourned. As our Lord Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem, instead of receiving those shouts of of praise and acclamation with with joy and with recognition that truly he was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Instead, he looked upon that great city, city, the center of God's own people, the center of worship, the the place where God had set his temple, had set his name. So this morning we'll consider what was happening as the Lord rode on this donkey into Jerusalem. What he said as he wept over that city will consider the grief of the king, the judgment of the king, and the prophecy of the king. That scene, the Lord Jesus coming into Jerusalem, is a striking one. He's had an extensive ministry, three years in Israel and beyond a little bit. Mostly, he was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. But in these last days, this time leading up to Jerusalem, and especially in this Gospel of Luke that it makes it clear, the Lord has met with increasing opposition, with increasing opposition to his message, increased 
suffering as he sets his face to Jerusalem. But yet now, as he comes closer, it seems that perhaps that suffering and that opposition are over because this large crowd is finally recognizing who he is. It's the time of the Passover feast. And so the words of Psalm 118 are on their minds. Psalm 118 was a significant part of the Passover liturgy for the Jews. The people are are calling it to mind and saying, Hosanna in the highest. This is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. These people are reciting the very words that the angels had sung over the fields in Bethlehem. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. There it was shrouded. Only the shepherds heard. Now the people are are shouting it from the the rooftop, shouting it outside Jerusalem for the whole city to hear. This warm reception will be short-lived. One person, at least, understood the ironic character of these shouts. That in every way, the shouts of these people were true. But those who were saying them had no idea what they were saying. They were acclaiming an earthly king. They were shouting the praises of someone who they thought would come in and would finally give them peace. The peace that they longed for. The overthrow of the Romans and the establishment of the nation of Israel and the kingdom of God on this earth. Supposing that Jesus is an earthly king. And this is the very charge that will be brought against him for which he will be crucified. In mere days, the people of this city will be shouting for this man's crucifixion, for this man's death, because he has blasphemed God, because he has committed high treason against the emperor, Caesar. So as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he's not overwhelmed with gratitude at the acclamations of these people. Instead, he's overwhelmed with a different set of emotions. As the Lord Jesus rides on a donkey toward Jerusalem, he's overwhelmed by grief. By grief. To exactly encompass what our Lord experiences here is difficult. Is it grief? Yes. But it's a different kind of grief. Is it mourning? Yes, but it's a different kind of mourning. He's experiencing real, deep sorrow, pain for the city of Jerusalem and for the people of God, his very own people. Why this sense of grief as he rides into Jerusalem? Why this this strange sight of the people shouting his praises and of Jesus weeping over this city? Because they are rejecting him. Yes, he who is now being acclaimed is also being rejected by this very city. You hear it in that that request of the Pharisees. Tell these people to stop. Rebuke your disciples. The Pharisees already hardened against him. And in a few days, the rest of the city will be as well. If you, even you, Jesus says, had only known what would bring you peace. What would bring Jerusalem peace? The very one, the very king riding in on a donkey. 
People supposed that this great man was going to somehow acclaim himself and overthrow the yoke of the Romans. But what they needed was not peace from the tyranny of the Romans. But they needed a greater and a deeper and a more lasting peace. It wasn't the Jews' problem with their earthly rulers. That was the problem. It was their problem with their heavenly ruler. It was that they lacked peace with God, with their covenant God. The peace that surpasses understanding. The peace that's characterized by, by faith and trust in Him. And of worshipping Him alone. They needed peace from the tyranny, not of the Romans, but of the sin and of the evil that had captured their fallen hearts. They knew that they wanted peace, but they didn't know what kind of peace they needed. Isn't that so true? Us. Isn't that so true of our world? Isn't that so true of the natural human heart? We know we lack peace. We know that we lack. You talk to anyone in this world, they, they know there's problems. They know there's a lack of peace. They know there's something wrong. And so they reach for solutions. This will bring us peace. This will bring us peace. This will bring us peace. But we need to understand what our problem is and from whom our peace will come. To understand the emotion that our Lord Jesus expresses here, you have to understand the context. The Lord Jesus is not some politician coming along with the latest and greatest idea of what his people need. That's what politicians do, right? They're there for a very short time. They say, you've got a problem, I'll deal with it, I'll fix it for you, I'll give you that peace that you're looking for, we'll, we'll, we'll do this, we'll do that, we'll do the other thing, then you'll be happy, and I'll deliver it all for you. Then, politician ultimately fails to deliver on their promises, they cannot bring that peace, and they move along. They weren't really that committed to the people that they served in the first place. Jesus is not some politician coming along with a, a short-term relationship with these people. He's coming along as their king, as their long-awaited Messiah. This isn't about, about this time coming up to Jerusalem, or even the ministry of the Lord Jesus, or even the, the 30 years, 33 years that he's been on this earth. This is about the people longing for this Messiah from their very beginning. From the very time at which they became a people, the people of God, the people called out of a foreign land and promised land for themselves, promised a relationship with God and promised peace by Him. The Lord Jesus is the one who was promised from the beginning. He's the seed of Abraham. He's the Lion of Judah. He's the Son of David. He's the Prince of Peace. The connection between Jesus and these people has not been building since the beginning of Jesus' ministry or his life. This relationship has been building ever since God called Abraham out of Ur and established his covenant with him. These are the Jews. These are God's own people. These are God's own family. 
These are his own treasured possession, as he calls them. These are the ones upon whom he has set his love and delight. These are the ones whom he has called to be his very own. These are the ones to whom God has sent his very own son. Jesus came and he said, I've been sent to the lost sheep of Israel, to these very people. They would not have him. And this city of Jerusalem, this is the city of God. This is the great city of David. This is the city where the temple is. Where God dwells with his people in the temple. Where sacrifices are offered to him. This is where God has established the rule of the kings of Israel, of Judah. This is the place from which salvation was to flow to the ends of the earth. This city was to be a light to the world. A light set on a hill. To display the glory of the everlasting God to all the nations. This people in this city, they have rejected their king. They have broken covenant with God. They've given themselves over to sin and darkness. A sin and darkness covered over with a very thick layer of religiosity. About doing the right things. About carrying out the right ceremonies. But completely devoid of a heart of worship. A heart that is humbled by its sin and looks to God to save them. So confronted with this sinfulness and rebellion before him, the Lord Jesus Christ grieves. As he grieves, he reveals something to us about the heart of God for his people. In the first place, the Lord Jesus grieves as a man. He is truly man. The emotion of sadness is an emotion that he experiences. He experiences it strongly here. He grieves over the presence of sin and and darkness and brokenness in this city. That's what has overtaken this people. Isn't that what so many of the Psalms do? Isn't that what so many of the laments of, of Jeremiah and the other prophets do? They, they lament over the sin and the brokenness and the rebellion in this world. They call to God in sadness and say, God, why? Why is this happening? How has it come to this? And that's what we do when we're confronted with the reality of sin, rebellion in this world. It makes us grieve. Brings us to grief. Causes our hearts to grieve. It properly makes us weep. But the deeper pain expressed here is not the pain of, of some abstract notion of sin and brokenness. You look at it on the world, you, you, you get this sense, this abstract sense of sin and brokenness. You, you look at your life, you get this abstract sense of sin and brokenness. But the deeper pain that's caused here is the pain that's caused by the breaking of relationship. The breaking of covenant. That's the deeper pain expressed here. This is the deeper pain also that is in grief. There's the abstract sense of, uh, of, of sin and brokenness and, and sorrow. But there's the deeper pain that's caused by the breaking of this relationship, by death. The person who you loved is no longer with you. That relationship is broken. Or the grief that's expressed and, and experienced in this situation where marriage breaks down. That marriage relationship is broken. 
You grieve over it. It causes you sadness. Or between a parent and a child. A child rebels against their parents. Parents grieve over the brokenness of that relationship. Jesus grieves over the covenant relationship with the people of God that has been broken. And consider the nature of that relationship. Because Jesus does not only grieve as a man, but he also grieves as God. He is fully man and fully God. He grieves as the God who has established this relationship from the beginning, who has nurtured this relationship, who has given the law, who has established his temple, who has established the kingdom, who has sent prophet after prophet to warn these people, to call them back. He's punished them. He's relented. He's done everything so that they would return to Him. He's now even sent His very own Son. They would not listen to Him. Genesis 6. Confronted with the sin and rebellion in the world. And yes, the breaking of that relationship of those created in the image of God. God grieved. Caused pain to Him. Now, we need to tread very carefully because we are speaking about the most holy God. We cannot understand his heart. We cannot understand how he reveals the expression of his emotions. But certainly he reveals in Genesis 6 and elsewhere as well as here that he is deeply grieved, hurt, offended by the sinful rebellion of those that he has made in his own image called to be his very own possession. So as Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem, earnest for the salvation of his people, of the children of his father, he grieves when he considers the unbelief that lives among them. Consider now the judgment of the king. There are two characteristics of God that are constantly held before us in scripture. That God is merciful and that God is also just. His grief shows to us his, his mercy and compassionate nature, that he's willing to forgive sin and rebellion, but God is also just. And his justice requires that sin against his glory and rebellion, against his authority, against his kingship, is worthy of judgment. Carried that judgment out after experiencing that grief in Genesis 6 with the flood. And now Jesus speaks of a coming judgment over the people of God. This is what we would expect from any king who would uphold the rule of law in his kingdom, wouldn't we? This is what we would expect from any king who is truly righteous and holy. Any king who is worthy of being called a king, that if his subjects will rebel against him and will not submit to his rule, that he will carry out his judgment against them. Luke 19, with the shouts of praise ringing in the ear, ringing in the air, the Lord Jesus looks into the heart of his chosen people, of his chosen city, and he sees a heart that's hardening in rejection. At the end of our text, the Lord Jesus lays this rejection at the feet of the people of Israel. They have rejected the grace of God. They did not recognize the time of God's coming to them. That parable of the, of the vineyard comes to mind. Of the owner of the vineyard sending all of these messengers, 
but the people of the vineyard putting them all to death, beating them up until finally the sun comes and they put him to death. This is God sending his own son, but they did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Now, God's coming in Scripture, that, that expression is usually a good thing. It usually represents God coming to the aid of his people, coming in his covenant love and fulfillment of his, his covenant promises, in his grace and mercy and compassion. But when God's mercy is spurned, when his covenant is broken, his grace ignored, then he comes also in his covenant, but in his covenant curse. He invokes his curse. He blinds his people, and he visits them with righteous judgment. What is Jesus speaking about here? He's most certainly speaking about the invasion of the Roman armies in 70 AD. What the Lord Jesus says here in Luke 19 verses 41 through 44 came true in the year 70 AD when the Roman armies marched upon Jerusalem, held them under siege, and then destroyed that great city. Now, liberal commentators fall all over themselves trying to figure out how Jesus was not actually speaking about that event before it happened, but he was. It's right here before our eyes. He says, they will build an embankment and circle and hem you on on every side. He's describing siege warfare. And that's exactly what happened to Jerusalem under the command of Titus, the former, uh, the future Roman Empire, emperor who besieged the city for three years, then sacked it and then destroyed it, even desecrating the temple, destroying the city and breaking the backs of the Jews. They held out as long as possible. But in the end, there was no holding back those Roman armies because there is no holding back the judgment of God. The judgment that Jesus speaks about here actually happened when the Jews had at first rebelled against the Romans. They, they tried to cast off their yoke, but they ended up being decimated by that Roman war machine. But the real rebellion of the Jews was not against the high powers of Rome, but it was against their God. It was against the most high majesty of God. Therefore, God sent the Romans to destroy the city, to desecrate his own temple, and to strike down the people. Prophecy of the Lord Jesus came true. Now consider the call of the king. As the Lord Jesus, the true king, rode into Israel, rode in Jerusalem that day, he grieved over his beloved city. And then he spoke those words as a, as a faithful king, that he would bring judgment upon them. But he was also speaking as a faithful prophet. He was bringing the word of God to bear against the people. The word of God says, if you rebel against him, you will be judged. He is a righteous and a holy God. Jesus was doing was not simply divining the future but bringing God's covenant to bear on the people. These were God's covenant people. They had the covenant, the promises, the revelation of God. They had been called to live a life set apart, but they had not. And even when God sent his own son into the world, they rejected him. They put him to death. And so God swore, as in Psalm 95, they shall never enter my rest. They had hardened themselves against the word of God. 
So the Lord Jesus is pronouncing a covenant curse upon the people of Israel. They will be destroyed. They will not all be destroyed. As the Lord issues this prophecy against the people of Israel, he is at the very same time calling them to repentance. Yes, even as God tells the people of the consequences of rejecting his grace, his grace is coming to them and speaking to them and calling them to repent, to turn from their ways and live. He is giving them warning. The judgment is not yet upon you. Repeatedly throughout the book of Acts, the apostles note the heinous crime that the people of God have committed in putting the Lord Jesus to death. But each time they do, they say, this is what you've done. You've killed the Lord's anointed. Now, repent. Repent of your sin and believe and you will be spared from God's wrath. You will be spared from God's judgment. Paul, the people of God to save themselves from the wicked generation of Israelites who would not open their eyes to the visitation of God himself. God himself had come into the world. Beloved congregation, as the new covenant people of God, we need to hear this judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ and take it to heart. Because the Lord continues to extend his covenant to his people. The Lord continues to speak his promises, to give his word, to reveal himself, to shower his grace and his love and his compassion upon his people. We need to respond to the Lord's grace and to the revelation of his salvation in Jesus Christ by faith. We cannot allow ourselves to become proud, to become pretentious to become empty people covered with a thick veneer of religiosity, doing the right things but having no heart of worship. God establishes his covenant with us, and so we have the greater privilege. But if we will take that for granted, then we will also have the greater judgment. God's judgment remains. Because God did not only come for the Jews, and he did not only carry his judgment out over the Jews. Many other passages in the New Testament speak about, uh, describe not just a local judgment of Jerusalem and of Israel, but describe a universal judgment. In fact, a passage like Matthew 24 seems to weave both of these together. The judgment of the people of God being a, a foreshadowing of the future universal judgment. It's a foretaste of the coming of the end of days. It's not just the Jews who have rejected the grace of God. It is all humanity that has done so. Time of judgment has come on Jerusalem and on the house of Judah. The time of judgment for the whole world has not yet come. We live among a wicked and rebellious generation. We live in a time in which people live in rebellion against God, in which people look for peace all over, but not with the Son of God himself. God has visited us with the gospel, and this gospel is being preached here today, and it is being preached throughout the world in his church. God calls us, God calls the world to recognize that he has sent his son into the world, that whoever believes in him should not perish under his righteous judgment, but should have eternal life. He calls us all, and he calls 
the whole world to repent of our sins or perish. The very next chapter, the Lord Jesus tells the parable of the tenants, parable of the vineyard. And in that he quotes Psalm 118, the very song that the crowds were singing on his way into Jerusalem. And he says that the stone the builders have rejected has become a capstone. The one whose rejection invites God's judgment on Jerusalem himself submitted himself to the judgment of God. The one who will carry out this covenant curse on the people of God has already borne the covenant curse for all who will believe in him. Yes, as Jesus comes as the king, speaking of God's righteous judgment over Jerusalem, he is going to that very city to submit himself to God's judgment for the sake of all those who will repent and believe in him. He is the righteous king, but he is also the savior, savior of the world. As he rode into Jerusalem, he said, if you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, what would bring them peace? What was Jesus calling Jerusalem to, calling the whole nation to, calling the whole world to when he said those words? He was calling them to have faith in him. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that he has come to bear God's righteous judgment against sin, against your sin, in his body, on the cross, for your sake, and you will be saved from that judgment. Lord Jesus, even as he speaks these words, these hard words, is on his way to the cross, where he will secure the salvation of all those who put their trust in him. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.